This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. The fact they could murder him in the way they did shows what we are dealing with. This is an incursion into a sovereign state and a land grab of part of its territory. If you're a big, developed nation and you're not helping to lead, then you are part of the problem. ISIS, Ukraine and climate change, just some of the big stories we covered in 2014. Withdrawal from Afghanistan, the spiralling crisis between Russia and the West and the jihadist threat from the Islamist militants all made the headlines in 2014. But which of these stories will we remember in 10 years' time? I'm joined at our festive sit-rep get-together by Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, Bridget Kendall, the BBC's diplomatic editor, and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Thanks for joining us today. Well, it's hard to believe, but a year ago, nobody had heard of Islamic State. There is no level of depravity to which they will not sink. No appeals made any difference. The fact that this was a kind, gentle, compassionate and caring man who'd simply gone to help others, the fact they could murder him in the way they did, shows what we are dealing with. The Prime Minister, David Cameron, talking about the beheading of the British aid worker, Alan Henning, by the group calling themselves Islamic State. It being our last sit-rep of 2014, we've asked you each to bring your top three global concerns. And surprisingly, you've all mentioned ISIS. Uh, Christopher, why did nobody see this coming? I think what was seen... ISIS is a separate unit was not predicted in a great deal. What was seen, of course, was the fact that the Islamist groups that were fighting, for example, in, in Syria, and then we had the sort of hint that there was something like a, you know, I, I started calling it a sort of a, a new third world war, that you've got, uh, you got Shia versus Sunni, and this was going to build up into something quite specific, and one side was going to come out and be the cruelest, or whatever we decided to call it. This, of course, was ISIS, which became uh, IS or whatever. Bridget, is the West losing the global fight against jihadism? Well, it's not looking great, you must say. Um, I think what happened with ISIS was we knew that there were these extremist jihadists in Syria. We just we knew there was problems in Iraq and that uh, local Sunnis were very upset with the Shia government. We just didn't join up the dots. We didn't think they'd sweep away borders in the way they did. And I think what's alarming is if you look at the extent of this problem in, for example, North Africa. Look at what's happening in Nigeria at the moment. Look at Libya, which barely seems to be a state. Northern Mali and spreading across borders there. And then look at the trouble that's just been in Pakistan. It is very worrying and it does feel as though you can send in uh, special forces, you can do a certain amount of bombing and use drones, but it doesn't see, seem to solve the problem. I think it was someone early on in, in the fight against Al-Qaeda who said the problem is if you just stamp on the puddle, all the drops just spread further away, and that does seem to be what's happened. Paul Rogers. Yes, I agree very much with all that last comment from Bridget is spot on. As to whether we didn't see it coming, one thing which was missed was the way in which the Islamic State in Iraq, as it was a couple of years ago, 
was quite small but very effective and, and really causing huge trouble in the Shia communities. What was missed was the way in which they did these extraordinary prison raids in the early part of 2012 and got out of jail many of the toughest paramilitaries that the Americans had handed over to the Iraqis from Camp Booker and elsewhere when the Americans moved out. Those, and there were many hundreds of them, maybe a thousand or so, have formed part of the paramilitary corps of the Islamic State movement and many of them actually got their training, so to speak, in Operation Arcadia and other things in 2005-06 against the elite Western forces, including the SAS. So these are incredibly hardened paramilitaries. And it was when they were broken out of jail and joined in was what gave uh, this group uh, an incredible boost. Um, primarily, they are Iraqis, but they, of course there was a link up with Syria as well. Put them together, and then by early this year, they were ready, really to go. Christopher, how, how well do you think that the West is dealing with this threat? I think one of the one of the most obvious things from, from 2014, in fact 2013 into 2014, was the failure of not so much the West, but world governments to <coughs> handle any major crisis. Um, it was almost as if you had, they were too powerful or, or whatever, and they'd been still thinking in terms of sort of confrontation at state level, and they simply are not good enough. In the was there an inability intellectually to adapt to these changing circumstances no, I think globally? No, so, I think it's the circumstances of asymmetric warfare, that it's happening all over the place, and there's nothing you can actually do unless you get to this, you know, this terrible expression, boots on the ground, unless you actually go to war in the only way that you know to go to war to attack organisations which will sort of, you know, rather like Bridget's puddle, that somebody stamps and it'll spring up in different places. Bridget, think, uh, go on, sorry. No, I was going to say, I mean, one of the problems seems to be we have a new generation of jihadism. If Al-Qaeda was an idea of global jihad, which seemed a bit unreal, really, I mean, they could ha strike lucky and send aeroplanes into skyscrapers in New York, but it was a bit harder to make their vision happen. What we've got now is something much more tangible. It's based on territory. If you look at Nigeria, if you look at Iraq and Syria, it's well financed. It has very skilled communications and it's using those to recruit. And I think most worrying of all for Western nations is if you look at where this new generation is coming from, as Paul said, the breeding grounds are our spaces. Western prisons, ghettos outside Western towns where second, third generation young people are feeling alienated, and internet and Twitter chat rooms where they get together and somehow reinforce or find themselves inspired by an idea a long way away so they get on an aeroplane and go there. That's really hard to fight, and certainly boots on the ground isn't going to deal with that. And there's another side of this, isn't there, Bridget, and that is that where the origins of dissent lie. Remember when we started the, talking about the Arab Spring, what we were talking about were young, middle-class, educated, uh, jobless people saying, we're not going to put up with this anymore. And then that spread in a way that we just didn't expect it. I mean, you can't blame it all on the iPhone, but it was the way of organisation of protest. That was something which going back to the idea of Western governments and intelligence gathering, they certainly weren't ready for. Stay and with, and if you bring it back, actually, look at what's happened in Tunisia. Really making progress towards democracy, but also having more young people joining Islamic State than anybody else. But of course, there's, what is it, 30% graduate unemployment in Tunisia. It's this kind of marginal thing and the perception of, of really being pushed to one side, which is one of the drivers, and, and that's going to be very tough to, to alter. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, what will 2015 look like for British forces?
This is BFBS. Sit rep. Let's now turn to Bridget's number one concern, the crisis between Russia and the West. Crimea is our common asset and the most important factor of stability in the region. This is a strategic territory that should be under strong and stable sovereignty. This is an incursion into a sovereign state and a land grab of part of its territory with no respect for the law of that country or for international law. Where Russia has made commitments, it has failed to meet them. Russia has negotiated a peace plan and then systematically undermined it at every step. It talks of peace, but it keeps fueling war. In order, that was President Putin, the former Foreign Secretary, William Hague, and Samantha Power, the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Well, a year ago on this programme, our panel said Russia was a problem for NATO, but nobody predicted it would go into Crimea and claim it as its own. Bridget, it's still a massive problem for NATO, isn't it? Well, it is, and I think one of the reasons that this... uh conflict feels so vivid and so worrying is a it's right on europe's doorstep so b you kind of think we shouldn't be really having this there ought to be a way to live uh, with russia as an uh, as as a next door neighbor and if there are differences over ukraine over crimea there should be a way to sort it out why did it have to come to bloodshed and there are lots of different reasons that have been given for this some mr putin says it's all about nato expansion uh, but other people say, well, maybe it's more about Mr. Putin and his fear of threats to his power, looking at if Ukraine were to change, if protests were to spread to Russia. And if that is the case, then that's going to, that means this is a conflict which is going to be very difficult to defuse. Christopher, we shouldn't really be having this. Um, we shouldn't be having it, but let's, let's go pick up one, uh, where, where, where Bridget was going in, in some ways. Um, just imagine you turn this round. And you come to the end of the Cold War, the war comes down, etc., in 1991 onwards. And instead of, uh, of a, a, a Russian president, it's us. And so our states are being taken away from us. They're moving into, another, into, the, into the Warsaw Pact, for example. There is a beginning of trying to understand, or wondering whether you should have to understand, exactly, stop looking at this sort of thing from our point of view. I mean, for example, I mean, I don't know, um, I mean, Bridget, is it just one man, for example? Is it just Putin? Is there anybody else, or is it just Putin? Do you have idea? the answer to that, Bridget? Well, he's certainly the most important man in Russia. He's just given a marathon news conference, and all the journalists were holding up placards, a bit like peasants petitioning the Tsar, as though he was the one man who could solve their region's problems. And it is a very vertical power in Russia now. He's the one who's got all the authority from the um, popular ratings. Other politicians don't count at all. Of course, they've manufactured this situation. Mm. But there's another thing, too, which is that he, he now talks about himself as being interchangeable with Russia. One of his advisors said to us at a conference I was at just a few weeks ago, without Putin there is no Russia, without Russia there is no Putin. And so it does seem as though the idea of him staying strong and at the top has merged in his own mind, in the minds of people around him, with keeping Russia strong. And that's, of course, very dangerous. That's a very worrying thought, because it does come back to this idea that any threat he sees to his power, any criticism from inside or any criticism he sees from outside, any, in fact, as he puts it, any government around the world doesn't share Russia's national interests is therefore not to be trusted. And that's a very dangerous 
state of affairs. Paul Rogers, do, how much do you think this has changed NATO in its thinking and it's pulled into sharp focus what its responsibilities might be? Well, it certainly has, but of course it does see it really almost through Cold War eyes. It's not able to get over that. I think one of the important points is the reason that Putin is particularly popular, because even 18, 20 years after it, many Russians are still very bitter about the way they thought that when the Soviet bloc came apart, they were treated with contempt, if not derision, by the West. And Putin plays on this handsomely and repeatedly. And this is why I think he maintains his popularity. He certainly manipulates this thought, and and, and it certainly is a resentment that's there. But it's not the whole story. Let's not forget, uh, Bill Clinton, when he was president, was devoting 30% of his time trying to work out how to help Russia. It's very difficult to help Russia because it is so big. And I think there are a lot of Russians who don't quite buy this narrative from their president that, as he puts it, the West is trying to chain the Russian bear and pull out its fangs and claws. I think they are quite alarmed at the story that he's telling, which is we now need to retreat from the West. We can't rely on it. In fact, we need to protect ourselves against it. I think quite a lot of Russians are worried about the gap that's now appearing between Russia and the West. And and what do you think, Bridget? I mean, what is going to happen now if the oil prices stay at around $60 for some months? Because well, I mean, that really be, will be big strains, won't it? Well, it will and it won't. I mean, as Mr. Putin said to his audience this morning, actually, Russia's in, not in a bad place. Its uh, budget is in surplus. It has sovereign wealth funds that it can use to help protect, for example, pensions from inflation. Yes, there'll need to be a bit of belt tightening, but it can get through this. Mm. And actually, if you look at the state of its economy in comparison to some economies in Europe, or, or even Britain with its huge debt, you have to say there's something in that. Mm, but right. of course, it is difficult when you think how many people in Russia are quite so poor and they can't they don't have a cushion so Mm. if things get worse they feel it and there isn't that much confidence there which feels as though this ruble crisis which has come on the on the heels of the oil price fall and on the heels of sanctions is partly about confidence inside russia uh, they're just not quite sure however strong mr putin says he is that he's really that strong and christopher um, oil is the top of your list of concerns this year yeah it was um i mean last night we dropped below $60 a barrel. And uh, we were talking about this earlier. Of, of if it, How far does he have to go, drop, before, for example, Russia starts to, to bleed a little on this? Um, Mr Putin says, well, you just hang in there. And three, four, five years' time, we'll look back and say, well, we fixed that one, we got through that one. But on a world scale, I think that the, that the fall in oil prices and all it means and the fact that the Americans believe through fracking that they can hang out to this and it doesn't actually matter because oil is very cheap there now. It is changing a lot of economies and then we get into the problem of economies uh, partly because of oil and we're actually getting to a point of debt. International debt is getting to the stage where America is starting to think could we get back for different reasons to where we were in 2008 and if that happens then we're talking about an international another global crisis and we have to start again. Yeah. Yeah, domestically, of course, with the collapse, well, not the collapse, the drop in oil prices, a large part of the North Sea oil development of new fields is becoming uneconomical. I have to say, if this had happened six months ago, it would have cast a rather different cloud over the Scottish uh, independence debate. Indeed, yes. Well, well, it never makes the biggest headlines, but this story may have the greatest impact on the next decade. Every nation has a responsibility to do its part. If we're going to pass this test... And only those nations who step up and respond to this threat 
can legitimately lay claim to any mantle of leadership and global responsibility. And yes, if you're a big, developed nation and you're not helping to lead, then you are part of the problem. That was U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry speaking at the Lima conference on climate change last week. Paul Rogers, that is your number one on your threat list, isn't it? It is, and I'm not talking just about next year. I'm talking about the next 10 to 20 years. This is a problem which is coming up more rapidly. Having We, we more or less lost the first decade of the 21st century because the United States under George Bush just did not accept it was going to be a problem. It is. The science is becoming really pretty overwhelming. We don't know what the impacts are going to be, but they're going to be very substantial. A few countries, including Canada and Russia, are going to benefit. But the problems for it's about four, four to five billion people who live in the tropics and subtropics are going to be dire when you get the big changes in weather patterns, particularly the decline in rainfall. I think it's the ultimate game changer, along with world economic problems, and uh, the problem is that unless we really act on this in a very radical way over the next 10 years, then I think 20 to 30 years' time we could be in a very uh, fragile world. It's going to get... It, the great test of this, isn't it, Paul, is, is next December, about 12 months yes, from where we're yeah, speaking. Yeah. And that's when there's the climate change meeting in, in Paris when everybody has not only got to put on the table what they're willing to do, but the time frames in which they're willing to do this. Now, we thought we had a deal going, uh, surprisingly, with the Chinese and the Americans just a few weeks back. Now, that seems to have changed altogether. But let's see where we get to um, when, we get, when we get to Paris. But this is, this is a proper crisis that we have now not just over the next say a century you get ice melts in places like annapurna you get big swamps uh, bursting uh, big swamps of ice bursting and then melting you get 10,000 people as we did earlier this year 10,000 people in india died as a result of of glacier melts um, these are crises which governments are not going to do anything about until it becomes commercially feasible them to do so and that is the clue to how you fix the problem of having 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere but the problem is if that doesn't happen soon if it if you don't get the huge efficiencies in renewables without government action fiscal measures then it may be very late in the day one actually has to speed up the idea of doing the transition and help the new technologies come on bridget and the problem is the other spur which would cause global powers to start taking this seriously and come together is when their populations push them and classically climate change is you may call it a crisis but it doesn't feel like that to most people until the flood is actually on their doorstep i think i think uh, analysts have shown that around the world through the through the centuries people have always clustered where there have been volcanoes or earthquakes simply because the soil is better and because it seems as though memories don't last more than 30 years and then people come back look at california there may have been a terrible earthquake there at the beginning of the 1900s but people cluster to san francisco they don't remember that long and it feels as though they don't look forward to the future that far either they look just in the next couple of decades and even though people like you on this program may say this it doesn't feel as though it's generating the urgency to put the pressure on the governments to act there's one other pressure which we'll see in the longer term and that is the mass migration of people as a result of climate change and that brings about instability on a, sta a scale which at the moment we show no signs of being able to handle mm. bridget let's talk about something on your list and it's ebola 
Well, that's right. Uh, we saw Ebola this year. Uh, I think even the, even the experts, those who knew about Ebola, always used to say this isn't a disease that's going to spread. It's, it it it's, tends to kill its hosts, and so you have it in one village, and then it evaporates and it doesn't spread. And look what happened. And it turns out that we're now in a world where we're so connected, where we can move from one place to another so quickly. And the, the rate of urbanisation, if you look at urbanisation in West Africa, uh, is going so fast that... These, these, these viruses, which, which looked as though they couldn't really spread too fast like this, that they can actually escalate out of control. And surely Ebola is a wake-up call. It's not going to be the last one. So 2014 saw the British military withdraw from combat in Afghanistan, but back in action over the skies of Iraq and fighting Ebola in Sierra Leone. So what can members of the British forces expect in 2015? Where are they likely to end up? Well, last night, the head of the armed forces, Sir Nicholas Horton, gave the annual chief of the defence staff lecture at the Royal United Services Institute. We need to continue to develop the armed forces in ways that some people will find uncomfortable in order to optimise ourselves to the demands of 21st century defence. Preservative instincts are not wholly helpful. The challenge is not to preserve and protect the old ways of doing things, but rather to do new things better and in the context of finite resources. I do dearly hope that in 12 months' time I will be able to report back that we as a nation can feel more, not less safe. So, Christopher, what do you make of that? This, I think, I mean, difficult to say, but this is the best Chief of Defence Staff uh, talk, he calls it a talk, not a lecture, that I've heard from a CDS since, I don't know, 80s, Why? early 80s, because he didn't just go back and say, oh, you know, this past year, this is what the boys have done, and isn't it really great, let's go <laughs> off and have a drink about it. Mm. Um, what he did, he looked forward. And some of the things he's looking forward to, he was saying, for example, you've got to, we've got to learn to accommodate change while maintaining stability. Um, we've got to have uh, the understand the economic and demographic change that's going on uh, throughout the world. And he, he got into specifics. You know, the Americans talk about the spectre of the hollow force. In other words, you have a mar marvellous bit of kit, but you haven't got the manpower and you can't actually make it work. And he's pointing to the Navy. Uh, last night mm -hmm. and they say well you know we've got great kit but might not have enough people and the other part of it which I think he's, he's saying well, you know the people in the country have got to be behind us on this they say yeah we love the armed forces great guys we don't like the wars they go to and that is a sort of political uh, change that he is identifying he's, we've got to pull all this lot together and so we, we can get a government that will say to us we will have to have defence funded as we do now for contingencies, contingency funding. But at the moment, you see, we're not funded to actually go and do it. You see, that, that has got to change. And that may involve the idea of going places and taking a risk like uh, the French do. Paul Rogers, from where you're standing, the people you talk to, because I know you, you give lectures to members of the armed forces, I mean, how, how, how are they standing against all the cuts and all the pressures they're under at the moment? How do you see it? I think morale in the British Armed Forces has been knocked back really quite considerably. And I think there's, there's an uncertainty as to how you're going to fund the whole system. Some of the really perceptive senior officers, not the ones at flag rank, but, flag rank, but a little bit below, 
are essentially the people who are saying, well, look, we're actually trying to do too much. If we're trying to have a major carry-based expeditionary force and maintained uh, a, a nuclear force and try and do a lot of other things, there isn't the money around. We don't see how there's going to be the money around. Yet it seems very difficult to have a strategic defence and security review which meet head-on the number of things and decides where Britain would be best to put its efforts because I think there's a feeling now that we just can't do everything in the way that we thought we could even ten years ago. Well, even, I tell you, even, even sort of five years ago, um, if the Navy went to the Defence Ministry today and said, listen, we're thinking of having a couple of carriers, will that be all right? They'd say no. Yeah, absolutely. It's as yes. simple as that. And this is what he's saying, this sort of spectre of the hollow force. You can have a carrier... But you won't be able to recruit enough people, the manpower prices, to actually, actually, to, to actually to run them. Yeah. The other thing you've got to start thinking of doing, that's going, going elsewhere and buying your equipment where you can buy it off the shelf mm. and you'll, you'll be good enough to, uh, to, to have the forces that you need. OK, well, you mentioned the Defence Review. Let, let's take a look ahead to next year because that's when it'll be taking place. Christopher, what's in the diary? Next year, well, the first thing the British are concerned, of course, is, is in, in May and that's a general election. Until we know the outcome of that, we may not know the next stage, and that is the the, the, the purpose and the and the re, of of the defence review that will follow it, and that becomes extraordinarily important. So, um, we go to the polls, then we have to go to that great debate on what sort of future forces and the people like the general last night will have to go to the government and say, "Listen, we know what we've got, we know what we can do, but what do you want us to do?" And that's going to be a big ask for him. And then eventually, I think the other bigger, I think even bigger story for, for next year is going to be December, what we've already talked about, and it's a climate change conference in, in, in Paris. Christopher, um, we're saying there, what do you want us to do? The next government will be asked. So, Bridget, do you get a sense that the military really know what the government wants them to do? I think it's very difficult. Uh, we've talked just in the last few minutes at the array of different challenges that there are around the world, and they're not all straight military challenges. And, um, I mean, come back to, for example, Ukraine-Russia, which is in a way a sort of simpler conflict, it's kind of old-fashioned conflict, you know, a, a neo-Cold War conflict. But even there, people are saying this isn't really about the sort of conflict that, for example, NATO used to prepare for, What's being used is hybrid warfare. This is about information. It's about all sorts of other things. And that, I think, makes it even more difficult for politicians to be able to decide with limited resources what they want, let alone tell their armed forces Paul Rogers, exactly what they should plan for. What should we be looking out for in 2015? I think certainly there are a range of things. I'd agree with uh, Christopher on the energy side, climate change, obviously, Russia. I think something that Chris mentioned, um, which I think is hugely important, is the risk of another major financial problem. We've not really addressed what actually happened in 2008 and appreciated the need to change the way that financial systems are regulated and organised. We basically think we can go back to the old ways and we can't. And my worry is that at some stage, almost out of the blue, we will get something like the equivalent of the toxic loans crisis, which will set off another period which is almost unhandleable. I'm not sure that will happen this next year, but that's a longer-term worry I certainly have. Christopher, we haven't really talked about cyber warfare. How much of a threat do you think that will be in the coming years? It's not only a threat, it's one that's recognised, and that is that a huge amount of effort turning in manpower uh, where you get people that can can run your counter cyber warfare organizations coming from i think people are trying to keep that up, up, up with that as much as possible but it is part of something else you take a force you send it let's say to africa or to the middle east or whatever 
your backup at one time was how many trucks and, and chuck wagons could we get there. Now you've got to have the most sophisticated sort of intelligence gathering. It's got to be on-the-spot intelligence gathering, the whole thing. Cyber comes into that, um, and also the planning of it comes, uh, and that is what we haven't had yet. And I think that is the thing that's going to develop in an enormous way. And also you're going to get hacked, aren't you? Uh, so that's, that, is, that is the inevitability. So it's the protection uh, for not just sort of uh, it's not just Sonny who have this sort of problem hmm. um, If we were to look back now over the last 12 months I'm just wondering amongst the three of you whether you think the world is a safer place or a more dangerous place briefly, Bridget Oh I'm afraid I think it's more dangerous uh, So many of these problems seem insurmountable and uh, the world is quite fractured um, both economically, countries are looking in on themselves, and politically, we've seen okay. new points of tension. So, I'm afraid okay. next year is probably going to be grim. Paul Rogers. We actually have less war than 20 years ago, but I would still have to agree with Bridget. I think we're in a very difficult position, and unless there are some very big changes and improvements in thinking, we're going to have a very difficult year and several years. It's going to be far more dangerous because we are incapable. Uh, of actually trying to control and trying to fix things which 20 years ago we would have fixed. Well, um, on that cheery note, I'd like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. Uh, thanks for everything this week and this year. My thanks to Paul Rogers, Bridget Kendall and, of course, Christopher Lee. We're back in three weeks' time on January the 8th. I'm Kate Jebbo. Thanks for listening. And from all of the SITREP team, have a Merry Christmas and hopefully a safe and happy New Year. And music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.